Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Matthew. Glory Glory to you, Lord Christ. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. And then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise be be to you, Lord Christ. again. Good morning. It's a joy to see you on this post-Thanksgiving Sunday. Uh, Let me pray for our time together in God's Word. Father, as we've already heard, this is a weighty text that we are considering this morning. I feel completely inadequate. So come now by your Spirit and do the work only you can. Convict, encourage, awaken, cause us to embrace Christ that he has offered to us in the gospel this morning. For we pray in his name. Amen. Well, last week, Josh Keller ended our series on the Lord's Prayer with a sermon titled The End of Prayer. If you haven't listened to that sermon, I would encourage you to go back and do that. Um, But at the end of that sermon, Josh used a memorable illustration about Mozart and his dad. And he said, quoting Josh here, soon God will send Jesus down the stairs and he will put his hands on the keys of the piano of history and he will play that last note. It's a great image. This morning, we're going to pick up with where Josh left off by considering that last note in Matthew 25, which begins with the words, when the son of man comes. This is the last Sunday in the church calendar. Next week, we begin the season of Advent. As Christians, we believe that the son of God took on human flesh lived the life we couldn't live, died the death we deserved to die. Three days later, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sat down at the right hand of the Father, and now reigns as king over the universe and will come again to establish for all eternity his kingdom on earth. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer each week, that's what we are praying for. We're praying for the kingdom of Christ, the King to come once and for all. But one question this passage puts before us is, are we ready for him? 
One of the other things we do each week is affirm the essential truths of the Christian faith using one of the creeds. And we start by saying these familiar words, Christian, what do you believe? And one of the truths that we affirm is, I believe Jesus ascended into heaven and from there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. So we as Christians believe that Jesus is coming to judge. And I suspect that for some of us here, even the thought of that terrifies us. It's not comforting or exciting in the least. It's only concerning because you have no confidence in where you stand before the judge. By the year 1735, news of the New England Revival, which would later be known as the first great awakening in America, had reached the shores of the British Isles. And Jonathan Edwards, the well-known pastor of the Congregational Church in Northampton, who both preached sinners in the hands of an angry God, as well as heaven is a world of love. He was asked to write an account of the miraculous work of God there because many had come to faith in Christ in a quick period of time. But early on in his narrative of surprising conversions, Edwards shares the story of how the sudden death of two young people in the town was used to awaken others, as he puts it, to the great things of the eternal world. Maybe something similar has happened to you. For me, even recently, hearing the news of someone just a little older than me dying in their sleep, and I'm just lying in my bed thinking to myself, most nights I don't give a second thought to whether or not I will wake up in the morning. I just take it for granted. But whether I die tomorrow or I am alive when Christ returns, am I ready to face him? Are you? I think passages like this are in the Bible to wake us up to the great things of the eternal world. And so if this text comes across as more of a wake-up call than a word of comfort for some of us, know that in every warning, there's also an invitation. So let's hear Jesus wooing us to himself this morning in a way from a selfish spirit that will keep us out of the kingdom of heaven. I have 20 minutes to talk about eternity, so pray for me. 20 minutes to talk about eternity. So only two points today. When the Son of Man comes, first, what will he do? And second, what has he done? What will he do? What has he done? We'll spend more time on the first point. Look with me at verse 31. Jesus says there, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. A couple things to consider here. That title, Son of Man, is used over 80 times in the Gospels, but with deep Old Testament roots. By identifying as one of us, as a man, it is Jesus's favorite way to talk about himself. He's the son of man. Way back in the prophet Daniel, chapter seven, Daniel has a vision, and this is what he sees in that vision. This is Daniel seven, verse nine. He says, as I looked, thrones were placed and the ancient of days took his seat. A thousand thousand served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court 
sat in judgment and the books were opened. I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. That day Daniel saw way back then is this day. At his first coming, there weren't many people who saw Jesus's glory. He was born as a peasant, ministered among the poor. He was crucified as a criminal. He had no majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. By all appearances, Jesus was inglorious, which is how millions of people still see him today. But they won't on that day. Because when the son of man comes with all the hosts of heaven, 10,000 times 10,000 to take his seat on the throne, there will be no mistaking who the king is. And we will either marvel at him or we will melt in fear before him. But in that very moment, when we see his glory, every Me will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you don't acknowledge him as Lord now, you will certainly then, only it will be too late. Jesus says he will sit on his glorious throne in all the nations. Everyone who has ever lived from everywhere will be gathered before him. Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist preacher from the 1800s, paints the picture of this great gathering of people like this. He says, multitudes will be gathered together. Their bones will come together and breath will enter their bodies anew and they will live once more. Even though they have slept long in the tomb, they will all rise with one impulse and have just one thought. I am about to appear before the judge. Back in chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus had said this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony, a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. And so the great commission of chapter 28 is now complete, and Jesus has received the full reward of his sacrifice. Because in his first coming, like a lamb led to the slaughter, he was slain. And by his blood, he ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, which means that his death on the cross didn't just make redemption possible for some people. He was slain to secure the salvation of a specific people. Because look what it says there in verse 32. It says he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. So do you notice how intimate and individual this is? He's separating one person from another like a shepherd would who's standing in the middle of a flock. He knows exactly those who are his. And not one of them will be missing. 
And then comes the judgment in verses 34 and 41. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I mean, who here doesn't want to hear those words? That's worth a whole sermon right there. What is this inheritance that awaits those blessed by the father? Here's what we know for sure. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And who here among us could ever love God if he didn't first love us? But what comes next in this passage should cause each of us to shudder. Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. These are the only two destinies for each of us. Either eternal pleasure with God or eternal punishment apart from God. No exceptions and no do-overs. Now, this is really important for us to get. What is the the basis of Jesus's judgment here? What's the evidence that's being presented before the bar of God's court that leads to either eternal life or to eternal punishment? It's a really important question to answer, right? Because there are millions of people in the world today who profess to follow Jesus, but their lives prove otherwise. And on judgment day, the evidence is presented and we are exposed for who we really are, either as sheep or as goats. So what is that evidence? Verse 35, what it says to the blessed, he says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And to those on his left, he says, you didn't do any of those things. But did you notice how surprised both groups are? Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison? And what is Jesus's response in verse 40? And the king will answer them. Truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Hmm. At this point in my sermon prep this week, I took a big step back and began compiling a list of passages that speak as Christians to our obligation to the poor. And we can only consider a couple here, but I think each of us needs to stop and ask ourselves an eternally important diagnostic question. And it's this. Is your life and mine marked by compassion for the poor, especially our brothers and sisters in Christ, both here in Austin and around the world who have urgent physical and spiritual needs? And does that compassion then lead us to sacrificial love in order to meet those needs? Or do we turn a blind eye and behave like they don't exist? This text teaches that those who know and follow Jesus are united to him by faith and therefore are members of his body, the church. Which means that when we show mercy 
to other members who are hungry and homeless, naked, sick, or in prison. Jesus says, we do it to him. This is the evidence, the proof that our faith is real when it is expressed in love, especially toward the least. It is the distinguishing mark of a Christian. Here's why. When you and I embrace Jesus by faith, God, the Holy Spirit, who is love and dwells us, and the inevitable fruit from our union with Christ, animated by the Spirit, is love for God and love for others. It can't be any other way. If our faith doesn't produce that kind of fruit, then we simply aren't a Christian. Let me give a couple texts to support that claim. This is how Paul puts it in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. He says, only one thing counts. Faith expressing itself in love. Faith working through love. He goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Do you remember the man who came up to Jesus in Luke 10 trying to justify himself and asked him, and who is my neighbor? Or who is my brother or sister in need? Because he had just asked what you and I are asking this morning. Okay, what must I do to inherit eternal life when the son of man comes in his glory? So Jesus tells him a story about a Samaritan who showed sacrificial love to a Jewish man who had been beaten and left for dead. And Jesus says to him, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? The man said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. In other words, who proves to be a Christian, an heir of eternal life? Answer, those whose faith is expressed in love to the poor, the destitute, the left for dead, the least of these for Jesus' sake. Or take 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love, John says, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. What about James chapter 2? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving him the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so when we as a church and as individuals stop to consider our brothers and sisters in Christ, both here and around the world who have urgent physical and spiritual needs, how can we hoard our wealth and resources while they go without daily necessities? John Calvin put it this way. Whenever we are reluctant to assist the poor, let us place before our eyes the Son of God, to whom it would be base sacrilege to refuse anything. Faith works. Otherwise, it is fake and it is artificial. It's kind of like that fruit basket, that fake fruit basket you put on top of your table and someone mistakes it for the real thing and gets a mouthful of plastic. It's kind of like that. To put a, a, a fine point on this, I started with a quote from one Keller, so why not share one from a, another Keller? 
Uh, This time, Tim, from his book, Generous Justice. Listen to what Tim Keller writes here. He said, some years ago, I heard a man relate the experience of a wealthy older woman that he once knew. She had never married and had no children to serve as heirs. She had only one close relative, a nephew, who hoped to inherit her money. He had always been gracious and attentive in her presence, but she had heard things from others that made her doubt her impression. The disposal of her wealth was no small matter. She had to be sure that the person who received it would use it wisely and generously. So she decided to take matters into her own hands. One morning, she dressed in tattered clothes, appearing to be a homeless person, and lay on the steps of his urban townhouse. When he came out, he cursed at her and told her to leave or he would call the police. And so she knew what his heart was really like. His response to the poor woman revealed his true nature. Proverbs 14.31 says, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. The God of the Bible says, as it were, I am the poor on your step. Your attitude toward them reveals what your true attitude is toward me. A life poured out in doing justice for the poor is the inevitable sign of any real, true gospel faith. So let's be clear. Jesus isn't teaching salvation by social justice here. I just start giving to those in need and you'll get into heaven. That if you want to be blessed by the Father, then you better start being more merciful. That's not what's going on here. Costly compassion is the inevitable consequence of conversion, not its cause. Like love for the least is the inevitable fruit of a living, true gospel faith. There are lots of people in the world today who are philanthropic, who want to end poverty and provide clean water to keep children from dying from preventable diseases, which are great causes to get behind. But they don't do it out of love for Jesus or because the gospel compels them. You don't have to be a Christian to care about the poor, but you can't be a Christian and not. Not when you consider what Christ has done for you, because we don't look to our fruit for assurance of faith. We look to Christ, the object of our faith. So point to what has he done? This passage comes at the very end of Jesus's life. Passover was just in a couple of days, which means that this was mere hours before he would be betrayed and then crucified to make the promise of eternal life here even possible. So when Jesus said, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world, he is letting us know that this rescue plan was in place before you and I were even born. And he was born to bring it about. Jesus was going to the cross to pay the ransom for his people so that we could inherit the kingdom. Because you and I could never earn it by our works. Because like sheep, we have all gone astray. We've all turned to our own way. We are all lost. So when he says in verse 32 that he will separate people one from another as a shepherd, separates the sheep from the goats, it is because he is the shepherd who knows each of his sheep and has come to bring them home, which is exactly what was promised back in Ezekiel 34, which was read for us, where God says in verse 15, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep 
And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak. And the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And so when we see that this coming son of man who is both king and judge is also the good shepherd who says in John 10, I know my own and my own know me. And I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. My sheep will hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Could there be any greater news in all the world than that? What is the ground of our assurance on judgment day? It's this one thing. The Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 23 tells us he provides for my every need. He protects me from all of my enemies. He will preserve me to the end and give me eternal life. So you see, friends, this is what produces love for the poor. It is the fruit that grows out of gospel ground. For, you know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says that though he was rich, Yet for your sake, he became poor so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's when you and I finally wake up and realize that when we were hungry, he's the one who gave us food, his body broken for us. And when we were thirsty, he gave us drink, his blood shed for us. When we were a stranger, He welcomed us into his family. When we were naked, he clothed us with his own righteousness. And when we were in prison, he set us free, free to love the least of these, free to loosen our grip on the world's goods in order to spend our lives for the good of the world and free to enjoy him forever. So do you hear the voice of the son of man this morning? Will you follow the good shepherd down the path that leads to eternal life? Will you receive the king who came to give good news of an eternal kingdom and who will come again in glory to give it freely to those who have loved him by loving the least? Let's pray. Our father, help us even now to know the hope to which we have been called to know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. Would you make us a hope filled people? Would you make us a merciful people? Would you make us a people willing to sacrifice much for the sake of love for any who are apart from Christ this morning, even as we prepare to come to the table, would you awaken them to their great need and to his great glory and grace shown us in the gospel. And we pray Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.